Hey everybody and welcome to this episode of Mixed Martial Analysis where we're going to be taking a look at the uh, UFC 249 card that happened last night. I mean, what a fucking night of fights. Uh, fights were entertaining the whole way through. A couple that weren't as entertaining as others, but still good fights nonetheless. Um, your main event between Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje was obviously fucking incredible. Lived up to everything that people expected. Um, got a little bit of controversy in the co-main event. Uh, you got to see Greg Hardy face some adversity early on in the fight, right? And how he would overcome that against a guy with serious knockout power. A lot, like I said, a lot happened in this fight. And uh, if you're Dana White, you got to be thrilled with how that main event went because you got to think the people that tuned into that kind of got what they paid for. You got to see a brilliant performance put on by Justin Gaethje. I mean, the best of his career. And uh, yeah, man, I mean, obviously some some excellent finishes on the night too. A lot of knockouts and. Uh, yeah, I mean, without further ado, let's just get on. Let's get into talking about each of these fights, uh, starting with the early prelims, and that was those were kicked off uh, by Ryan Spann and Sam Alvey in a light heavyweight bout. And this was a fight where I mean, Sam Alvey showed you throughout the course of the fight that he's always dangerous. Uh, even when Ryan Spann was landing with things, Alvey's really sneaky with his counters, man, and he was looping those hooks in there, and I mean, catching Spann with some stuff. Uh, Span almost caught, he caught him in that standing arm triangle, but he just couldn't finish it against Alvy. And after he let go of that, you kind of saw the volume turn down a little bit. Like, I think he probably was aware that he spent a lot of energy trying to finish that joke. And Alvy started finding some success, kind of started just, like I said, finding home for those hooks and stuff. And he's a really sneaky counter puncher, man. You got to be careful. Uh, I think as the second round started to wear on, you kind of started to see Alvy finding more and more in success. And then I think he won the third round. I thought it was a 29-28 decision for Span. I thought that was the right call. I think this was – I can't remember if this was a fucking split decision or not. I don't know. But I, I felt like Ryan Span won the first two rounds and then Sam Alvey won the third. And this fight was just a testament to the veteran that Sam Alvey is and, you know – how he's very hard to put away and he's got a very awkward style to deal with. And he, you could see that when he was connecting with Ryan Spann, Ryan Spann was forced to respect the power. Sam Alvey has knockout power in his hands, man. You can never sleep on this guy. So um, that's a tough loss for Sam Alvey because I think that's four in a row for him now. Let me look it up and make sure I'm not lying to you guys. But I think that's his fourth loss in a row. And uh, yeah, man, he, Ryan Spann's just a big guy with some nasty jujitsu and some really clean striking. So uh, it was a tough fight for Alvy, but he did get going late. And like I said, he was finding success with the counters. You can't ever sleep on him. And it makes you wonder, like, uh, if he wouldn't have got down so so big early on, if he would have maybe found more success, if he could have kept Spann off him just a little bit more in the first round, if maybe he could have got a finish in the third because he was hurting Spann, no doubt about it. Um, but a good win for Ryan Spann and a, a win that he needed to kind of, you know, fight a notable name in, in the UF, on the UFC roster to kind of, you know, bring some attention to the fact that he's up and coming and he's a, a real problem in this light heavyweight division. So a good win for Spann nonetheless. It shows him that he's got some things to clean up and he got to go out and face a real veteran in the sport, a guy in Sam Alvey who has, I mean, a, a real a real resume you know he's fought a lot of really good guys and he's got a ton of fights man so it was a good fight for ryan span all around okay <laughs> next fight bryce mitchell versus charles rosa now when i did the breakdown for this i got to clarify something that i said i said sometimes the purple belt will catch the black belt when i did the breakdown right i was not implying that bryce mitchell was a purple belt i actually didn't know what rank he was 
I saw that he was a brown belt on some Wikipedia articles. So that's kind of like what I went into it assuming. What I meant when I made that comparison, all I meant was Charles Rosa is a black belt, an established one. He's been a black belt for about four years now. So I believe, and I'm not sure, I don't know. I th Bryce Mitchell has his black belt now, I'm pretty sure, based on the comments that I saw on the channel. I'm not positive exactly when he got it. I don't know. I think probably more recently than Charles Rosa did. So I all I meant was when I said that, sometimes you'll see the lesser experienced grappler um, in terms of time they spend on the mat, they can catch guys and stuff. Like there are guys who are just, sometimes you get like a purple belt who's just an animal, man, and he's going to catch black belts and things. And it's not like he's going to catch them religiously. That's not what I'm saying, but sometimes they will get them. It's rare that it happens, but sometimes you get these guys. Like all I was trying to say is that I felt like Charles Rosa had probably maybe a little bit of an advantage on the ground going into the fight. And I thought that Bryce might be able to combat some of that with being more creative. But I was 100% wrong. Bryce didn't just – he didn't just go in there and, like, look competitive against Rosa. He fucking embarrassed him, man. I mean, I don't mean – no disrespect to Charles Rosa. I don't, mean, I don't mean it that way. But, I mean, Bryce completely mauled him, disrespected him. The top pressure that he was putting on was very Habib-esque. You know, trying to triangle the legs the way he wrapped him up, got him up against the cage, and then worked his way into position. He was always getting into mount and looking for the arm, looking for the arm triangle for mount, and then transitioning from that to the twister. Constantly, those were the only two things he was looking for. And those, the twister doesn't get pulled off very often. And the fact that Bryce Mitchell was able to work himself into that position so religiously is just a testament to how fucking good his jujitsu is, man. And I'll tell you what. If you watch Bryce Mitchell fight Charles Rosa last night, that's not the same Bryce Mitchell that fought fucking Bobby Moffat. And that's not the same Bryce Mitchell that fought Brad Catone and got tapped out in the Contender Series. This is a whole new guy. And it's crazy because he has so much fucking faith in Arkansas. And I think he definitely picks up on things from other, like the Twister. I mean, Eddie Bravo shit, right? Time Planet. He's willing to learn and absorb things. But he's very committed to his home camp. And he's making these massive, massive strides in between every fight. I mean, don't get me wrong, man. I thought they were. I, I thought I gave the edge to Rosa going in. I thought it would be competitive and that Bryce might be able to win some positional battles, but it was just pure and utter domination. I mean, Rosa couldn't do anything. There was nothing. There was nothing that Rosa offered that even ever made me feel like Bryce was in danger. Even when he was getting through some escapes, and I thought he might. There might be some scrambles. Bryce would just put the pressure on him, flatten him back out, and just stay on top and do what he wanted to do with him. He was constantly ahead of him on the transitions, and it was just. I mean, if you're the featherweight division right now and you're seeing what Bryce Mitchell just did to a legitimate black belt and a guy who, I mean, controlled Yair Rodriguez on the ground, you're got to be thinking like, fuck, man, this is a real problem coming up here at 145 and he's young. He's young. He's only going to get better. Bryce Mitchell, after that performance, I don't know how you can't be excited about him in the featherweight division, man. Um, as far as what's next, I don't know. The, the, the featherweight division is sort of – a, a, a weird spot, right? Um, because you've got, I think your top two guys are probably, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more when we get to Cater and Stevens, but your top two guys right now outside of Holloway and Alexander Volkanovsky, who I think will probably likely rematch, are probably Brian Ortega and Zabit. After that, I think you got Cater throwing his hat into the ring after the performance last night. But uh, staying on track with Bryce Mitchell. I think that he's probably ready to crack the top 15. I mean, like I said, that wasn't just a win. That was a fucking 
it was unreal, man. I mean, <laughs> every round was a 10-8, in my opinion. There was not a single moment that Charles Rosa offered anything. So, you know what fight really intrigues me when I look at the rankings? Ryan Hall. If you see what Bryce just did now, and also consider, like, Bryce has good stand-up. I just think that he went in there kind of with a point to prove because Rosa was saying he was going to take an arm home with him, and I think Bryce just was like, okay, we'll fucking see about that, and he proved him wrong. But don't forget to Bryce. He didn't even really get to display it in that fight, but has really fucking good striking too. Really crisp, really creative. He's got some great sidekicks. He's got great length. He's got great movement. And You just got to see one piece of Bryce Mitchell's game last night, and it was very dominant. It's scary. It's scary how quickly he's able to learn and adapt. Um, I like a fight with Ryan Hall. I think that's a good – I think it's just so interesting. A lot of guys are trying to dodge him. Uh, it, it, if he could go in there and get a win against a guy like that, it would do so much more to, I mean – cement because ryan hall is a jujitsu fucking wizard man his triangle setups and his everything especially off of his back and if you saw like what bryce was doing a lot of it was relying on pressure right so you'll get to see if he can deal with a guy who works really well off of his back can he do the same thing and don't forget going into that fight i'm gonna i would imagine that bryce mitchell has a, a little bit of an edge on the feet so if he can get a specialist that does a lot for his name and then you might start talking about him moving into like the top 10 fights after that if he can beat a guy like ryan hall a lot of people don't want to fight ryan hall man his submission game is fucking nasty so i don't know it's hard to say what's going to be next for him there are guys like sadiq yusuf sitting in there arnold allen shane burgos right shane burgos probably a little bit higher up but uh there 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 are fights there to be made um and yeah I, i i think that bryce mitchell is it's impossible to deny that he's a top 15 talent at the very least. I think he's going to get a big fight next against a, a guy with a pretty notable name. Whew. And we're just, so I'm rambling, but that was, that was just the early prelims, right? Uh, now we move on to the actual prelims. Well, they kind of lumped it all in together. Everything was on ESPN, right? But you move on to um, the regular prelims i'm waiting for this page to load sorry and you got you start off with uh vicente luque and nico price and this is one of those fights man where it wasn't it wasn't like nico price wasn't finding success he was hitting him with some shots and he was dangerous at times and uh you know i, I didn't get to go back and rewatch this one i can't I, I honest honest to god just talking about it off the top of my head i can't remember it that well i remember vicente luque being very technical with the striking and just kind of controlling the range and everything and keeping it more of a technical battle. And Nico Price kind of struggled because a lot of those openings that I thought he he would he was hoping on finding just weren't there. Vicente Luque always keeping things high and tight and defensive. I mean, willing to eat some shots to get in there and land, right? Like it was a competitive fight, but Vicente Luque just ultimately proved to be a little bit too much for uh, Nico Price. So good fight. And uh, kind of shows you that ne- Vicente Luque kind of cemented himself as still – he's one of those top 15 guys, you know. Like, he, he just got off – he's coming off that loss to Wonderboy Thompson before this. And kind of, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say – it, it, it's a step down in competition. I thought he would fight somebody a little bit higher ranked than Nico Price, maybe somebody with a little bit bigger name. I don't know if it was just circumstantial, like based on what was going on with all the COVID shit, blah, 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 you know, but uh, – Regardless, a good win for Vicente Luque against a very dangerous guy and a guy who finds a lot of unorthodox ways to win in Nico Price. So, uh, yeah, yeah, b- big win for Vicente Luque last night. Um, 
Next was a women's straw, strawweight bout between Carla Sparza and Michelle Waterson. And when this fight ended, I said, if you're either one of these girls, you can't really be upset about what, what way the judges call it. Because I personally, I, I really didn't know. I really didn't know. I felt like Carla was the one who was, I mean, Michelle established the range and used some kicks well and stuff and tagged her with some punches. But Carla was the one who seemed to be more aggressive, would go for the takedowns and stuff. And um, every time they would engage in the clinch, it was like Michelle couldn't do anything to land any tosses or anything. Uh, this was kind of a weird one. And I don't, I don't think if you're either girl, you can be upset about how it went. Like I said, I personally kind of thought Michelle Waterson won it. But again, I haven't watched this one back. And I can definitely see how the judges gave it to Carla. Like I said, she was the one being aggressive. I think she was landing a little bit more significantly with the hands and stuff like that. You know, so it's it's tough if you don't. If there's not a ton of action and there's not a ton to, ton to go on, you can't get too disappointed when you lose a close fight like that. So, um, I thought going into this one that Michelle Watterson would really be able to maintain the range, and I think she did that well, and it caused Carla to kind of have to rush in on things, but Michelle wasn't really capitalizing on that. Um, you could see that she was kind of behind when she was throwing some of the kicks when Carla would come in. I mean, there was, there was success on both ends for both women, right? But it – at the end of the day, it's not like Michelle did anything that was super convincing. It's not like she got robbed and dominantly won every round. I just kind of thought that, like, from my perspective and watching it the first time through and just kind of enjoying it more than really scoring it, I thought Michelle won. But, like I said, this is, to me, this, isn't, this is no type of – this is no robbery or anything like that. Like, I could 100% understand your perspective if Carla won. And I might even change my mind if I watch it back and, you know, get to kind of – watch it with a clear head again i watched the main card this morning but none of the prelims so uh yeah good fight good fight competitive fight but it, it, also you got to remember like you just got to watch uh bryce mitchell and that like constant action and domination ryan span avi was a pretty good fight luke and price was a really good fight and then carlos bars and waterson wasn't quite as exciting as that one you know so getting I wouldn't say spoiled, like you saw some really good fights so far and you got to see a stoppage, right, with Vicente Luque and Nico Price. So uh, it wasn't great that they followed the first stoppage of the night. But either way, good fight, good fight, good win for Carla Sparza, and she gets to kind of move on and try to continue her climb up the strawweight bank, uh, rankings now. Next, we move on to a heavyweight bout between Alexia Linick and Fabricio Verdum. And going into this fight, I really thought that there were there weren't going to be a whole lot of places where Verdun or Alenic was going to be able to offer trouble to Verdun because I thought that Verdun's striking and boxing would just be so much more technical. But from the very first exchange that they got into, and I mean Olenek was throwing things from like crazy angles like he often does, throwing a lot of weight and power behind the shots and really beating Verdun up and backing him up against the cage man and keeping the pressure on him. From the very first exchange, I was kind of like, damn, man, Fabricio looks like he's fighting in slow motion. Like he's just – he wasn't able to react to the things that Olenek was doing. And, you know, again, small moments of success, but not really. It was like Olenek was swarming him. Finally, I think – and it was like Verdum seemed stronger than Olenek too, especially with the takedowns. Like he didn't even have to shoot the best, most well-timed shot on Olenek, but when he shot it, he was almost always able to get him down and get on top. So I thought you'd see a little bit more of that. Also, things are coming back to me a little bit now. I remember that Verdun was working for that clinch a lot and maybe relying on that a little bit too heavily to land the knee, and maybe he was looking for the knockout blow, or maybe he should have been using that clinch to set up some takedowns. Um, I don't know, man. It was 
I, you got to consider the layoff that Verdum's had too. And I didn't really think about that going into this. I just kind of looked at Verdum's past performances and kind of thought, well, you know, I mean, you can't lose all of that, but he looked really slow. He looked like he was getting beat to the punch quite literally on just about everything. And he just didn't look like he was all in there. He looked like he kind of got into a rhythm. And when he got on top of Olenek, you could see that Verdum still had the grappling advantage. Like that was still a little bit more of Verdum's world. There were some points where I thought he was going to finish Olenek maybe, I believe towards the end of the second and then again in the third. But I I still thought that Olenek did enough to earn the win. I thought he won the first two rounds, and I think Fabricio I thought won the third because that's when he got pretty grappling heavy and got on top. But still, not able to put Olenek away. And he, he had his back at one point even and just kind of slid off the top. So it was like – also you have to remember though, like Olenek's one of those guys who is a high-level grappler. And a lot of the times when you're high-level like that, you can get put in dangerous spots because you've been there all the time and you're able to defend. Like you'll get to the last stage of what the defense would be and you're still able to defend from there. You know what I mean? Because you're a high-level fucking black. It's gonna, it was hard for Verdum to get a finish against Olenek because he's still a very well-respected grappler and still knows what the fuck he's doing. And it's hard to get a guy like that out of there, especially Olenek, strong, tough. So big win for Alexi Olenek. He got to go out there and, you know, implement a striking and pick up a decision win over one of the greatest heavyweights of all time so hats off to him and uh excited to see who he'll be fighting next it's going to be interesting to see who he gets paired up against you know he's already fought a lot of big names at heavyweight okay so now we get to the welterweight bout between anthony pettis and donald cerrone and i kind of thought that okay so my perception from my perspective i thought that anthony pettis when the fight was over i thought that he won I thought that it was a close fight. I thought that it was competitive, but I felt like Pettis was landing more cleanly and he was getting more power off in all the exchanges. Um, it wasn't that Cowboy wasn't landing. It wasn't the Cowboy wasn't finding success. That head kick that he hit, Pettis was, was perfectly timed and that lands on so many people and it puts him out, you know? So for Pettis to eat that shot was pretty impressive. But for the most part, and like I said, Cowboy found success, but for the most part, I felt like Anthony Pettis was slipping things and he was just getting the better of the exchanges and he had more weight behind his punches and they seemed to be more significant and they impacted Cowboy more than Cowboy shots against, more than Cowboy's strikes did, you know, against Pettis. Uh, the takedowns are why when I watched the fight, though, like I remember thinking, okay, I think Pettis won, but I, I think the judges are going to end up giving this one to Cerrone just because he landed those takedowns. And uh, I think he landed one in the first and the second. He didn't really do a ton with them, uh, but he did land them. And, he, you know, he was – I thought that the way the judging was going, it was going to lean towards Cerrone, but it didn't. I thought the guy who was supposed to win the fight won. I thought they got the decision correct, but um, this was a competitive fight, much more so than the first time these these two fought and Pettis finished him. So, and if you're Cowboy, I know this is your fourth loss in a row, but Anthony Pettis is a high-level guy and he's dangerous, and I think you did some things in that fight that make you think like, okay, I can still I can still compete, you know? Like, I, Cowboy's just a guy who wants to fight, and it, this is the problem with him is that he's like, it's almost like he he's not quite at the level that the championship caliber guys in either division are right. Like he's just not quite there for whatever reason. I don't know if it's whatever. I don't know if it's a problem with the big stage and performing or whatever, you know, I don't, it's hard to say. I'm not Donald Cerrone, but he's also good enough that he's competitive amongst like a lot of the top 10 guys and better than a lot of the top 10 guys. Like 
He's like a middle I, – I would say that Donald Cerrone is religiously like a seven or eight spot guy where he, he's always dangerous. Like he always – when he matches up against someone who's at the very top, you go, oh, man, I could kind of see him beating him. Like I could see it happening. Probably won't happen, but I could see it happening. And when he fights guys that are a little bit more in his wheelhouse in terms of the rankings, he like blows through them. So he's a weird phenomenon, man, where he sits like right in that spot between championship caliber fighters and like – that number set like i said that's that like cutoff he's like right in that six spot man like there's the top five guys that he kind of struggles with and then he kind of beats up on everyone else it's weird it's weird um he's had an amazing career though and i don't think he's going anywhere and uh, like i said i think that fight was probably a good one for him to get some confidence back and it's going to be interesting to see what the ufc has in store for him next um, i'm guessing it's going to be against an opponent I, i'm guessing it's going to be a winnable fight for cowboy if he's not going to stop fighting they're going to give him someone who they're like okay this is a guy that you should be able to go out and take out. You know what I mean? So we'll, we'll, we'll see who they decide to pair him up against next. And for Pettis, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, it's hard to guess, man. Hard to play matchmaker. And I haven't done enough looking through the rankings. Well, let's take a look at 170 right now, assuming that Pettis wants to stay there. Also, small detail, but I noticed that Pettis had some, like, love handles. And usually he's a little bit more cut up for his fight. I know it's 170. And I don't mean to pick. It's not like he looked like he was in bad shape or like, but he he didn't look like he was in the best shape I've ever seen him. Okay, so looking at welterweight, I mean, uh, Robbie Lawler, Nate Diaz, Rafael dos Andres, Chiesa, uh, Gilbert Burns is going to be fighting Tyron Woodley, uh, Leon Edwards. You know, you got to think he's going to be fighting one of the top like three guys. I could I could see Jorge Masvidal getting put put up against Leon Edwards, man. If Jorge Masvidal and Usman doesn't work out, they got some beef, and that's a great fight. Ah, uh, let's see. Fuck, man, Jeff Neal. Man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if Pettis hangs around at one seventy if he's gonna fight a guy like Jeff Neal. I don't know. It's hard to tell. It, that would be a good fight, though. But man, Neal's dangerous, dude. I don't know. I don't know. I. So it's going to be, like I said, there's a lot of guys that it's hard to tell who they're going to match him up with. Like, he's already fought Rafael Dos Andres. He already tapped out Chiesa. Um, I don't think a, win, a fight against Maya is that exciting. Burns is already matched up. He already knocked out Steven Thompson. Like I said, Leon Edwards and Mosfet all have a little bit of beef. Maybe Colby Covington. I don't know. Jeff Neal would be a great fight, and it would really get to show us where Jeff Neal's striking is really at going against a high-level veteran like Anthony Pettis. So... I like that fight, but I don't know that it's going to happen. We'll see. We'll see. Like I said, going to have to play a little bit of a waiting game there to see what they do with Pettis. He's such an interesting an interesting fighter, man. But all right, let's finally move on to this main card. And uh, you kick the night off with Greg Hardy and Jorgen DeCastro. And Jorgen DeCastro comes out and looks like he's got the perfect game plan, man. He's digging the leg kicks in heavy. And uh, they're landing, and he's landing some power shots against Hardy. And it looked like, I mean, it looked like it was going to be a really close fight and like somebody was about to go to sleep. But at some point in the second round, I think it was, Greg Hardy checked one of the leg kicks that Jorgen DeCastro threw. And it seemed like it just threw his whole game plan off. It seemed like when that leg kick option was no longer available to him and he couldn't throw it, it was like he almost couldn't do anything. He got like paralysis of analysis. He couldn't like... He was just standing there, and he's like, well, fuck, I can't – I don't have a leg kick, so nothing that I'm doing – my whole game plan was being based off Hardy fights heavy on the lead foot, and if I can beat that up, I can open up my combinations and stuff. And it seems like it seemed like when out, that was out the window, he was very hesitant to do anything at all. Understandably so because of Greg Hardy's power, but, like, 
that when you watch a fight like this, don't get me wrong. It's, it was a great fight. I understand it's Greg Hardy, but like I personally would have preferred to see like Cowboy and Pettis on this card just because it is small things like that. Like when, when that fails, when that one thing fails, that can't high level fighters, when you're talking about the best of the best. And when I think of a pay-per-view main card, um, I know I understand the business move on Greg Hardy's name, blah, 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 all that shit. I understand it. Right. But you can't not have a plan B when something like that happens, like Jorgen De Castro needed to find a different way to go win the fight. And he didn't do that. And it allowed Greg Hardy to take over and it lost him the fight, man. He had to be more active. You can't, you can't have a singular focus. And when that one thing is gone, because when you start facing high level competition, there's no way that your first, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, most guys are going to catch on and they're going to start defending it. And when those are, when you need to make adjustments, that's when the real chess match starts taking place. So you got to see that like, I didn't like the, the cat. He looked very good. He looked very smooth. He's got smooth striking. He's got, he's just got to refine that. Like, I can't be so reliant on one thing. I have to have a more, I have to have a larger vocabulary in case something like that happens. And my one game plan goes out the window. Like I have to be able to lean on something else. Um, Greg Hardy, however, made adjustments. He checked the leg kick. He started pushing DeCastro up against the cage and found that like he was able to slide out of range of some of the punches and land big shots. It's not like Greg Hardy fought the most exciting fight in the world, but you got to remember that his league leg was beat up and it's hard to apply pressure when you are a heavy striker and especially a heavyweight and you're putting all of your weight on your foot, your lead foot, man, because you throw with a lot of power. So I thought that Hardy just adjusted well and it's like little things like that that you see that like kind of separate the mindset. Uh, or I don't want to say the mindset in terms of like their toughness or whatever. Right. But just like y you get to see the adaptability a little bit more in Greg Hardy in that fight than you did Jorgen DeCastro. So that's something that Jorgen DeCastro, if he wants to be an elite level fighter in the UFC heavyweight division, you have to make those changes or you're, you're not going to make it against these top guys, man. You have to be able to adapt and overcome. And that was the, I mean, like I said, when he threw his combos, very smooth, a lot of power behind him. He looked good when he would throw things. It's not like a technical problem. It's having like a, you know, it's a game plan problem a little bit. Okay, moving on to the featherweight bout between Jeremy Stevens and Calvin Cater. This was a great fight, and I was super excited for this one. Jeremy Stevens comes out, and he's looking good early, man, firing off leg kicks um, and, you know, just kind of mixing things up a little bit better than Cater. Cater's much more reliant on his boxing. Those leg kicks were really paying dividends, and you were able to see that Stevens was putting the pressure on Cater. Um, I really felt as if Stevens won the first round. Uh, but you could kind of see that Cater towards the end of the first was starting to get his timing and his distance down a little bit, starting to implement the head movement and starting to get into a rhythm and really started to see that at the, uh, at the start of the second, he was, he, you could just see that when Cater started timing Stevens up coming in, that it was, it was going to be trouble for Stevens. Stevens is aggressive, man. He came in on that shit and Cater, Cater would just sit down and counter him. And his hands were just so much more fluid, and he was ripping. He started ripping to the body and to the head. And he'll, one of the things I like about Cater is he attacks the body with the hands. Um, especially, he'll throw that jab to your body all the time. He always keeps you guessing. And it's not just that Cater's boxing. It's like when you see a lot of guys throw power combos and stuff, it's like they're throwing these massive punches and overextending a little bit. But like when Calvin Cater boxes, Every single shot that he hits you with is setting the next one up. Like he's tilting your head a little bit in this direction and coming through and follow, catching you here. He's always, his hands are setting up 
one punch is setting up the next constantly. And that's the difference between Calvin Cater and a lot of the guys that he's going to fight in that division. High level boxing, really fucking good with his hands and really precise. You know, when it keeps guys guessing, man, it's, He's, he's a real problem to deal with, and you got to see him kind of overcome a true veteran in Jeremy Stevens. Jeremy Stevens tried to engage in the clinch a little bit in the second round when you think he realized Cater was getting ahead in the strikes, and then Cater steps in with that fucking beautiful, beautiful elbow and puts Stevens out, gets on top of him, and finishes the fight. So an excellent performance from Calvin Cater, and I'm sure a pretty gratifying one, especially if you consider the fact that Stevens missed weight by four and a half pounds. That's a lot. Um I know there's a lot of shit going on. I don't know what happened with all the weight cutting stuff. You know, Jeremy Stevens is a, a a real veteran and a professional. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened with the weight cut, but regardless, Calvin Cater goes out and beats one of the most dangerous guys in the division. When he comes in four and a half pounds overweight, pretty impressive. Knocks him out cold. Whew. Calvin Cater's scary, man, especially when you consider what happened against the beat in that third round. And it, it, Calvin Cater's, it, this is what I mean with the, uh, the 145-pound division, it's in an interesting spot right now because Cater's knocked out guys like Burgos. I don't know if the fight with Emmett makes sense. Maybe a fight against Yair Rodriguez right now because I think that Brian – I think Holloway and Alexander Volkanovsky are probably going to rematch. Brian Ortega probably needs to fight Zabit to figure out who the number one contender is after that. And if you're Calvin Cater, you don't want to have too much inactivity. But there's also uh, the Korean Zombie sitting there, man. Korean Zombie versus Calvin Cater might not be a bad fight. Yair, Yair Rodriguez is in the mix. I mean, there's a lot going on at 145, but Cater needs to take on a fight that's going to push him up in the rankings. I'll tell you what, man. I wouldn't hate a fight against the Korean Zombie. I really wouldn't. That's not a terrible fight. Who's who? I got to look at. I can't think off the top of my head. I think Yair Rodriguez just beat uh, Jeremy Stevens too, right in his last in his last bout. So that fight makes sense. Those are two guys that are likely going to keep it on the feet, and uh, you know get to see a little bit of boxing versus a more of a more of a Rodriguez is so much more willing to throw kicks and he's so much more versatile with he's got a more varied attack than Cater um but then Cater's boxing knowledge and just his it's so deep you know it's it's an interesting matchup I wouldn't hate Yair Rodriguez versus Calvin Cater I wouldn't hate Korean Zombie versus Calvin Cater. There's a lot of guys that Cater can fight, and I think that he has real potential to work into the top five, top three, and maybe challenge for the title at one point. I mean, he's got a lot of promise. A lot of promise. Okay, moving on to the Bantamweight title, and there's a lot going on in this one, okay? Henry Cejudo originally slated to fight Jose Aldo. While this COVID shit happens, Dominic Cruz steps in, and you got to think that Dominic Cruz is able to step into this spot because of a lack of a clear number one contender. He's the most notable name in the division. Uh, TJ Dillashaw's out with all the uh, serving his suspension. And then you got like Piotr Jan, Aljamain Sterling, and Corey Sanhagen sitting in the wings. And those are like, in my opinion, I say this all the time, those are the top three fighters at 135 right now outside of Cejudo. Um, Cruz, though, consensus greatest bantamweight of all time, steps in, takes the fight, and in, after the longest layoff of his career, finally gets a chance to regain his title. And he's fighting Henry Cejudo, a guy who was down at flyweight, you know, so he's thinking like, maybe I have a size advantage in this. I've been, I fought my whole career here. I know what it feels like to be here. And this is only Henry's like second, second or third fight here. I think second fight here. So you would think that from that angle, things would be in his favor a little bit, but Henry Cejudo activity, explosiveness, um, the fact that he is 
the confidence that he's riding, the fact that he's already dethroned somebody like TJ Dillashaw and the not dethroned him as in he didn't take the 135 pound title from him, but knocked him out. And then Marlon Marias as well. So you got to think that like Henry Cejudo is not going to be so concerned about like knockout power from Dominic Cruz after fighting a guy like Marias. Anyway, Henry Cejudo comes in with a fucking brilliant game plan and he's just attacking the legs every time Dominic Cruz comes in on something going after the legs constantly and really beating him up and sliding in and out of range really nicely. Like every time that Cruz would throw stuff, it seemed like Cruz's leg kicks were all missing. He was whiffing on all of them. Um, Cruz was finding moments of success and you could, there were moments where Cruz was shooting for takedowns and Henry was sprawling hard. And you could kind of see, especially towards the end of the first round that Cruz was looking to follow those takedowns up with punches. Like he was using those to set, to set Sudo up to come over top of something. And I think that in the second round, you got to see a little bit more success from Dominic Cruz, but there was never really a moment in the fight. And maybe this is just the nature of Dominic Cruz's fighting style. There was never really a moment in the fight where I felt like Cruz was in control. It felt like Henry had control of the situation all the time, right? Now Cruz starts finding a little more success and we get to the end of the second round and Henry times a fucking beautiful knee. I mean, the timing on it was great. Henry, Dominic Cruz came in, came in with his head down and Cejudo fucking hit him with it and it obviously stunned him and then right as he looks like he's about to recover Cejudo comes flying in and cracks Cruz with another right hand and then he hits him with a slew of shots I think in, I think I counted including the kick um I'm sorry including the knee that initially dropped Cruz there were like four I think it was 14 strikes that I counted that weren't counted that weren't answered for and also this is tough because personally I'm and I know that this is a little bit of maybe a, a brutal way of viewing a fight now the next one we're going to talk about is a little bit different but I believe in finality and I know that that's a tough like it, it's a tough line to play with when you're considering fighter safety but like it wasn't like Cruz had gotten battered over the course of five rounds like Justin Gaethje did to Tony Ferguson or like Max Holloway did to Brian Ortega Cruz got rocked and he was trying to recover. And you've seen guys get rocked and recover before. Um, I'm not necessarily criticizing Keith Peterson. That's a uh, It's a tough situation to be in. And when you look at the right hand from Cejudo, I mean, and also the way that Cruz was getting up, he was still allowing strikes to get thrown at his face. Um, like both of his hands were on the ground where maybe he should have been doing this and at least showing that he was covering up. I think that might have been what Keith Peterson's looking for. You got to remember in a moment like that, Keith Peterson is trying to consider a lot of different variables. He's trying to consider like, okay, I have an Olympic caliber wrestler swarming a guy. He just hit him with a big knee. Cruz was clearly rocked. He got cracked with another right hand and now he's not covering his head up and he's working his way back to his feet. But is he just in autopilot mode? What's going on? Why isn't he answering? Why isn't he answering? And then he stops it. But the problem is he stops it as Cruz is getting his base back underneath him and is standing up. It's a tough spot to be in if you're Keith Peterson, because that looks like it should be the end of the fight. And it, it this is my personal opinion. If I was judging, I would have let it go. I, I I would have let it, I would have saw what, now if he gets dropped again after standing up, I would have maybe called it then. But I personally, I mean, I can't even say that because I'm not in there and I've never fucking roughed the fight. It's not fair for me to say that I would actually do it, right? But you know what I mean. Look, having the advantage of hindsight and everything, looking at it, I don't think that it should have been stopped, is what I should say. Um, 
I think that you could have let it continue, and I think that Cruz should have had more of an opportunity to recover, especially it's hard to be subjective. You really you, – you can't be. And Cruz had a problem with this after the fight, but you got to consider that Cruz ha- – this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Cruz, and, like, you're a couple seconds I, – I, that stuff isn't supposed to matter. The ref is just supposed to end it, but, like – I don't know. It's tough. It's tough. Then, okay, so after that, Keith Peterson ends it. Like I said, I, I, I can understand why he did it. It looked like the fight It looked like the fight was in a position where it should have been ended, and Keith Peterson is a professional. I always think, every time I watch him, I think about what a great job he does. And, you know, obviously Dominic Cruz is initially upset afterwards. And then a lot's going on in this fight. Okay, so now Henry Cejudo wins, and he announces that he's retiring. Dana White confirms it with him afterwards, and now we've got a vacant Bantamweight title. And you think Piotr Jan is probably going to be the one guy to fight for it. And I would imagine that they're going to pick Aljamain Sterling to fight Piotr Jan for the vacant belt, right? So Cejudo retires. And now we've got to consider, is this real? Or is this simply, because Cejudo's 33 years old. He has accomplished a lot in his career. And you've got to wonder... This is what I. This is the first thing I thought after he announced that he was retiring. I thought, okay, if I'm Cejudo and I'm looking at the division, I could fight three really tough guys, and like there are guys like like I said, Sanhagen, Sterling, Yawn, um, even guys like. I, I mean, let's look at the rankings for 135 right here, right? Mariah, Sterling, Yawn, Sanhagen, Asuncao, Aldo. Like, you can keep beating these guys, or you can. The, the lighter weight classes sort of have a little bit of a problem with like the validation aspect or for some reason or whatever, right? Like not that they're not obviously world-class, but people have a harder time caring about them, I think. And it's a real shame because Bantamweight is super deep. So you got to wonder is Henry Cejudo retiring and creating this situation where he's not only letting the top fighters in that division kind of work it out amongst themselves, but he also kind of casts a shadow of a doubt on whoever the champion is, whoever wins this vacant title you're kind of going to always have it in the back of your mind like, okay, but could he beat could, could this guy beat Cejudo? And I think Cejudo kind of knows that, and it leaves the opportunity open for him to come back and cement himself. Like, you can, without taking all the risk of fighting all these guys consecutively, you can let them all work it out amongst themselves and then come back and beat one of them in your mind and, get, and in one fight eliminate all the doubt about who the greatest bantamweight ever is. Because you let them – take care of it and establish who's it, who's the top dog at 135. And then you come in and try to wipe them out and say, well, yeah, you guys just figured all that out. And now look how good I am because you're clearly the best band of weight in the world amongst all these guys. And now I just came in and beat you. So uh, I think it's kind of a tactical move on Henry Cejudo's part. Cause like I said, man, 135 is deep and there's a lot of talent there and there's a lot of figuring out that has to go on. So don't be fucking surprised. Don't be don't be surprised if this is one of those things where Henry Cejudo comes back in a couple years and just gets to fight one of the guys who has already cemented himself as the top dog at 135. Okay, moving on. Fine. Oh no no no. There's one thing I want to talk about still. How about after Megan Olivia's uh, Megan Olivia is interviewing Dominic Cruz in the in, on the post fight show and he's giving her a little bit of attitude about stuff like I wasn't a big fan of how he was responding to her. Obviously he's coming off a loss though, right? I mean he just got kneed in the fucking head. He felt like he was wrong. He's not going to be in a good mood. But she was asking him stuff like, "Did you feel like you were completely cognizant in there?" And he was like, "Oh well, cognizance kind of like kind of like you know a little bit of attitude on the stuff, understandable." But then he comes out and says. 
I felt like Keith Peterson smelled like alcohol and cigarettes. And I was like, oh my God, this is such a heavy accusation to lay against somebody because you're talking about a guy in Keith Peterson who has had a, a, an excellent career. I mean, he slowly worked himself up to the point where he's now refing a title fight. And he's somebody who every time I watch him, I think he cares about a lot, of, a lot about his job. He always has the fighter's best interests at heart. He's very fair. He's very reasonable. He doesn't take a lot of bullshit. And in this fight, I thought he handled the headbutt situation very well. He didn't seem off to me at all. He laughed about when they went to their corners and stuff. On the op- They went to the wrong corner after the first round ended. Um, Keith Peterson didn't seem like he was out of it at all to me. I mean, that stoppage was a little bit early, but that happens to the best of guys. I mean, even guys like Her- Herb Dean, Big John McCarthy, they all have early stoppages on the record, man. It's going to happen. And it, it's not even like it was the worst one that I've ever seen in my life. Like, you got hit with a big knee, you got cracked with the right hand, and then you ate 10 more unanswered shots? And then you're going to go out and say and put this guy's reputation and everything that he's worked for on the line by publicly saying on TV that he you smelled alcohol and cigarettes on him? That's not the right move. Also, Dominic Cruz saying shit like, I told the referee backstage that I wanted to be separated from consciousness. Like, I wanted to be put out before this fight was called. You don't get to make that call. You're not the referee. This is the referee's job to act objectively in that situation. He's not giving you special favors, man. I mean, it's not its not a good look for Dominic Cruz. It makes it look like he's not handling the loss well. It's okay to be disappointed about it. It's okay to, I mean, speak, it for, I mean, speak the fact that, like, you thought it was unfair. Like, state your case. But to go on air without confronting him first or raising it behind, like, to, to just accuse him of that. I mean, if it's not true, it's such a heavy accusation and you're putting this man's entire career in jeopardy. And you don't even have definitive proof that it was true. And you got rocked. You just got kneed in the head. And you're giving this interview after getting kneed in the head like that and expecting us to just be like, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to take Dominic Cruz's word for it. He just got knocked out and clobbered with 14 unanswered shot, including a huge right hand and a big knee that dropped him. Like, come on, man. That's not that. Th- I don't. Uh, it's not fair. It's, if it's true, if it is true and Keith Peterson is doing that, it's a terrible thing. He should not be in there operating under that mindset. You're talking about two guys who are putting their li- their lives on the line, quite literally, and are fighting for one of the biggest moments in their life. Like, they've been preparing for a long time for this moment. It's finally come to a head. You can't be intoxicated in there. But I didn't see any evidence that he was. He looked fine to me. He wasn't stumbling around. I mean, con- that's a dangerous that's a dangerous thing to say in my mind on dominic cruz it does not bode well i don't i don't like that shit i'm not gonna lie all right um moving on to the main event between justin gaethje and tony ferguson and going into this fight i kind of thought that it was going to boil down to whether ferguson was going to be able to weather an early storm and maybe get hurt and drop by justin gaethje and how about it it kind of ends up going the other way how about not that uh, not Justin was always able to fend Ferguson off. I mean, throughout the course of five, over the course of five rounds, he completely, he outclassed him. I mean, there were moments throughout the first round where Tony was really finding success to the body and it was back and forth. And after watching the first round, I remember thinking, okay, we got a fight on our hands, but Justin's definitely controlling him. And one of my, like one of the things that I always say is when you fight somebody who applies pressure, you have to make them pay for pressure. They're always going to keep applying it. If you're not making them pay, they're going to keep putting it on you. 
Justin Gaethje did a masterful job of making Tony Ferguson pay for pressure. He was cracking him with the right hand every time he came in, and he was just implementing beautiful head movement. And then when he was missing with combos, he was following them, following them up with shots that would hit. And like I said, Tony was finding success. He found a lot of success in particular with his left hand. Um, when they would trade, you could see that Tony still – I slept on Tony's power a little bit. Like, I, I knew he had it, but, like, when they would trade, I would go, oh, my God, that one – if that lands, that might put Justin out. And then you get to the second round, and Justin's fighting brilliantly again, and Tony drops him with a big uppercut. And you think, whew, I was scoring that whole second round for Justin. But let's just, like – I think when Tony drops him like that, you got to – it's not like Tony definitely lost the majority of the round, but he also landed the most significant shot of the round and dropped Justin and still did some work. I thought that I thought Justin fought a better round two than Tony did, but I felt like you still almost have to give round two to Tony round one. I thought belonged to Justin and uh, you got to see too, that like the throughout the course of this fight, all Justin did was beat the legs up and fucking go to the head. He didn't really work the body a ton, but he didn't really need to because his leg kicks were so effective. Every time he would land him, they were bothering Ferguson or they were spinning him around or throwing him off balance. And like I said, it's not like Tony wasn't finding success, but it was just like Justin just fought such a poised. And that was the best Justin like, that was the best Justin Gage we've ever we've ever seen. He was so poised. He was relaxed. He was also like one of the big differences was Every time they went back to the corner, you got to see what a brilliant job Trevor Whitman was doing with Justin Gaethje. He had a perfect read. It was like the, he, he could see where Justin's head was going. He was like, hey, you're trying to kill him with every fucking shot, man. Relax, relax. And that was what Justin was doing in the second round. You could see him really – you could even see throughout the fight after Whitman told him to like kind of reel it back in. He definitely did. He was much more controlled with the striking, but he still loves that left hook, man. When he was throwing the left hook even through the third, fourth, fifth – he was still overextending on it a little bit. Like he wanted to connect with it. And he was sometimes. But after that second round, Trevor Whitman sat him down and said, hey, like, calm. You, you, you've got to, you, if you're Trevor Whitman too, you've got to realize that you've hit Ferguson with some bombs and that the guy's just not going to go away. And you got to see the most patient and the most professional Justin Gaethje we've ever seen. It was the perfect example of controlled violence. Everything was – he was waiting on things. When he did hurt, hurt Tony, he was aware that Tony was still dangerous and he's like a, a caged animal in a way and you can't really go in and rush it and force, force the finish. Like he just slowly worked Tony Ferguson over, man. Impressively, he beat him. He was he was winning almost all of the striking exchanges. Like I said, Tony would find these mild successes, but when you got into the fourth round, it was obvious that Justin was really like – Tony wasn't used to being in that situation where normally by that time he's applying the pressure on guys and Justin wasn't going anywhere and still cracking them. And when you got into the fifth, man, it was like Justin had finally just dismantled him to the point where everything that Justin was throwing was super successful. And, you know, it's okay to be upset if you're Tony Ferguson. I understand you want to go out on your shield, but again, that, that stoppage wasn't even questionable to me. I thought that Tony Ferguson was taking such uh, – he was just taking – he's too tough for his own good in that. It reminded me a little bit of Max Holloway and Brian Ortega. But um, Justin Gaethje cements himself as the greatest threat to Habib that we've seen yet. 
undoubtedly, especially when you consider his wrestling base and how great and crisp his boxing looked. Everything was so technically sharp, too. It's like you got to see this guy who finally was able to take, like I said, all that violence and aggression and put it to, like, calculated use. It was such a brilliant performance, and he was always implementing head movement and just never got tired and just never let – just constantly – made Tony pay for the pressure that he was trying to apply and fought a brilliant fight the whole way through five rounds. And, um, you know, you got to wonder if Habib goes up against this guy. Is Habib, Habib stand-up going to be on the level that Justin Gaethje's is? I'm going to guess – I'm going to say, looking at the footage that I've seen, no. But is Justin Gaethje going to be able to keep Habib off of him? Question that we're going to have to get answered. It's uh, It makes the fight so much more interesting now. In a, in, in a way, I'm actually kind of glad it happened because I think that I'm kind of like I would have loved to see Tony and Habib, but I mean now it's not just like Justin went out and knocked him out kind of like I thought would happen if Justin won. Justin went out and beat Tony up over the course of five rounds. I mean he cemented himself as, like I said, it's not like he just knocked him out and Ferguson was winning and he caught him with something. It was like a complete domination, and now there's no doubt about who needs to fight Habib next. There's no doubt. And you can't help but feel bad for Tony Ferguson, a guy who wrote a 12-fight win streak, and it felt like the only reason he never held a title was just a matter of timing. Um, Habib and Tony, the only difference between them – I mean, obviously, Tony just suffered this loss to Gaethje, right? But Habib hasn't fought Gaethje yet. And the only difference between them is just kind of like a matter of where they were at in their careers when they got the opportunity to fight for the title. I don't know. It's – it's tough because Tony's undoubtedly one of the best in the division, but now you got to think that fights against Conor McGregor open up for him because you, you need to see Habib and Gaethje now. There's no doubt about it. you got to wonder if, like, who's Tony going to fight next? Is he going to go after a guy like Conor McGregor that could instantly propel him back to the top if he could beat him? Um, is he going to fight? Is he going to take a little bit of a break? He's going to need a layoff. He's definitely going to need fucking time. I don't think he's going to be ready in time to fight Connor. And I don't think Connor's going to fight somebody coming off a loss. Connor might even just sit and wait to see what happens with Gaethje and Habib. <sighs> because you, if you're Connor, you're probably hoping Gaethje wins because Gaethje is so much more willing to stand on the feet. And you got to think that that's your wheelhouse. If you're Connor, a lot of different directions, things could go with Tony Ferguson. I don't really know. Like I said, it's a tough call. He's probably – I doubt – I don't think Connor's going to take the fight. Connor might just sit and wait to see what happens with Ferguson and Gaethje now. He could take a fight against Masvidal, and if he took that at 170, it would still allow him to lose potentially. I'm not saying he's going to lose, but it would allow him to lose and still drop back down and fight at 155 and say, oh, I lost because it was 170 against the bigger guy. I don't fucking know. I don't know what's going to happen. But – um. There should be a lot of movement soon from the UFC, and they've got another event coming out on Wednesday. And that's going to be headlined by Glover Smith, <laughs> Glover Teixeira, and Anthony Smith. Sorry, I've been talking too long. But um, I'm going to try to get a breakdown out for that. That's on Wednesday. It's going to be tight, and if I do, it's probably going to be – I'm not going to be able to – I won't be able to do as much research on all the guys as I want to. Luckily, I know most of the guys on it. Smith, Rothwell, St. Prude, Teixeira, Alexander Neres, Dober. Yeah. So relatively big names on this card coming up, and it's on a Wednesday, man. So kind of breaks up the monotony of not having live sports on again in the middle of the week, and I think they're going to air it on ESPN. Oh, ESPN Plus, it says. So there you go. But I think that covers everything I wanted to talk about in this one. This podcast was a little bit lengthy, but there was just so much that happened last night and so much to kind of like break down and consider. Um, oh, my God. 
I think I skipped right over when we were doing this. I think I skipped right over Ngannou and Jarzino Rosenstrike. So, like I said, there was just so much going on this card. Um, what 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 do you want to talk about though? The, the fact that if you get into a a striking battle with Francis Ngannou, it's not going to end well. He's going to put you to sleep. Your only answer is to wrestle him. I don't think you can go in there unless you hit him with something before he gets off on you and come straight down the pipe and just end it before he ever gets a chance, man. If he gets to land on you, he's going to put you to sleep. No doubt about it. He, he's the most dangerous guy in the division and maybe in the history of the entire fucking sport. He's got so much confidence in his power and with good reason. Francis Ngannou has to fight for the title at some point. It's just kind of the heavyweight division is a little bit mixed up right now with Stipe and DC and Stipe not being able to train and DC wants the trilogy fight and you know, lots going on. So if Stipe is not able to fight, you might see DC and Ngannou. But for me, if I'm DC, it's not even that I don't want to fight. Like, I think that Ngannou could absolutely knock DC out if he catches him. But I would guess that DC is just going to wrestle fuck him. If I'm DC, I don't take that fight because I'm looking at my family and I'm looking at where I'm at in my career and I'm looking at my health and you can always get caught. And it just doesn't seem like a fight that's necessary to prove that he's better than Francis. Like... If Stipe was able to wrestle Francis the way he did, you know DC's probably going to be able to with a little bit more ease, right? So, look, man, I mean, Ngannou could absolutely catch him. It just seems like a very risky fight for DC to take on. I would I would prefer even to see DC and Stipe as opposed to seeing DC fight Ngannou. And, you know, it's not it, – it, it's just one of those things where the risk doesn't seem like it's worth the reward. Like, somebody's already exposed a flaw in Ngannou's style, and that's just what every – like DC said in the interview, like – they kind of asked him a little bit after the fight, and he was like, I'm going to wrestle him. I'm not going to stand up and fight this guy. Like, I'm going to go out and wrestle him. So, uh, yeah, it's eh, – to me, it doesn't do a lot to cement anything for Cormier's career because, like I said, Stipe's already accomplished it. DC beat Stipe. Stipe beat DC. Now you got to figure it out between those guys and kind of like – if DC could go out and fight Stipe one more time, I think he can just be content with his career after that regardless of the outcome. Anyway, now I think I got through everything that I wanted to talk about. So I can't believe I went right over that fight. It was like, you know, fucking crazy knockout. Anyway, um, I think that covers everything that I wanted to get through. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Greatly appreciated on my end. If you guys are listening on YouTube, don't forget that you can get the audio version wherever you get your podcast from. iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Store, wherever. And uh, obviously, if you're listening on any of those platforms right now, if you're listening to the audio version of this, you can check us out on YouTube. And we put videos up there. Um, I'm gonna, like I said, I'm gonna try to get a fight uh, a prediction for each of the fights coming out, each of the fights on the main card that'll take place on Wednesday, and I'll try to get one together for Saturday as well. It's kind of a busy time for the UFC, so it's good, man. It's good. It feels good to be back, like watching fights and kind of prepping for these again. Um, better than having nothing on, right? So. I'm happy. I'm happy that fights are back. But anyway, that wraps this up. Again, thank you guys so much for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye.